that's one huge life lesson that I have learned is to redefine success constantly. I do always just want to keep being better. I don't want to stagnate and I just, I just don't want to ever feel like I'm done. Hello. Hi. Uh, hi, how are you? <laughs> I, I'm here with Becca McCoy. This is Barbara St. Clair, and you are listening to AI Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas. And as I mentioned, I'm here with Becca McCoy, who is an actress and a singer and has shown up in a brand new body that's yes. much, much more petite than when I first met her. So compliments on a loss of over 100 pounds, I believe. Yes. You look marvelous. Thank you. I want to take you back, actually, to a time before you had lost all that weight. The first time I saw you, I was sitting in an audience for a workshop that Harry Lennox was doing for the Tampa Bay Theater Festival. And he accepted people to come up on the stage and it was one hand waving of the <laughs> most least shy person in the room and he chose you. And you came up and you, you did a scene from a Shakespeare play and then he made some suggestions to you and you redid it and it was completely different. And then he made some additional suggestions to you I think this went on for probably 30 minutes. At a certain point, he called you his muse. He was so excited about working with somebody who was so able to take cues and direction and make magic happen. So I wanted to hear from you what that was like and how it is for an actress to get that kind of engagement with a director or, or another actor to really inform your performance. Such a thrill. I was aware of who Harry was, not from his film and TV credits necessarily, but because I cut my acting teeth in Chicago. So I know of him from the Chicago theater scene. He's a well-respected director, actor, and I knew that he was classically trained. Uh, so I was prepared to take advantage of him for that purpose. I had a Shakespeare at the ready. And yeah, you're right. I was on the edge of my seat. And as soon as he was asking for volunteers, I was ready to catapult out of my chair. And he was, it was very exciting. I have a couple of photographs and it's such a thrill to look back over them. And there's a couple where he's visibly beaming watching me work. And that is um, just kind of over overwhelming. So what happened in that work? Because you started, let's say you started at point A and by the time you ended, you were at point M. What happened that made that possible? What I really thrive on and what worked you know, in that environment and has worked for me uh, like w with other directors like Kenneth Mitchell, who used to be the artistic director of American Stage. David Jenkins is another one. Um, if you come to the table with a lot of strong choices, but not married to anything to the point that it would be detrimental to be nudged in another direction. I think that that's when your work really has a chance to blossom. So I, I come in having made decisions um, that this is who my character is, this is what they want, this is who they're speaking to, this is the, the environment that, that I'm in, this is what's keeping me from accomplishing my goals. And someone with an outside perspective looks at what I've brought to the table and gives ideas from a, a broader perspective than I can see from working from within. 
then the give and take between us is what's really going to make that work flourish. And does that happen pretty typically when you're in a performance? With a high quality director, yes. And sometimes it also, you need a longer rehearsal process than some of the theaters are able to give. It's not financially advantageous for theaters to have lengthy rehearsal processes necessarily anymore. So when when you have a really strong director and you have the time, yeah, I find that that naturally happens over the course. Um, I, I try now to come in already fully memorized on day one, and that also helps me because I'm unencumbered by holding on to a a crutch or, you know, just getting the rudiments down. Once the, once the text is, is already laid in there, then we can build a structure on it. So you mentioned that you cut your teeth in Chicago. Yes. Tell me about that. I am a St. Pete native and I went um, all the way through college and then bounced around regionally and settled in Chicago in 2004 and kind of discovered all that I had to learn. The uh, had some bad habits that needed to be broken and was very humbled and but excited to learn as much as possible. I w- was fortunate to be able to take those early blows uh, and and learn and grow from them. So within like a year and a year and a week, uh, 75 auditions, I booked my first major show in Chicago, which was a production of Moon for the Misbegotten and crossed one of my dream roles off my bucket list and uh, established a relationship at that particular theater where I would go on to do two other truly career defining roles with the artistic director, Atel Billig, who has since passed and she was a real champion for me. Um, but after I booked my first show in Chicago, I worked nonstop. I did seven shows back to back to back to back to back, uh, until I got pregnant with my daughter and I was scheduled to do a world premiere at Jeff Daniels theater in Michigan, the purple rose theater company. And they hold their auditions and book things so far in advance that I was booked 14 months out and within that 14 months conceived my daughter Um, So unfortunately I had to withdraw from that show because of how it timed out. But I picked up a stage management job so that I would not lose the work weeks. For us freelance actors, work weeks are of paramount importance because they earn health insurance, they earn um, pension credit and, and 401k and things like that. So I couldn't afford to lose my health insurance right before I had mm. a child. So I had to pick up a stage management job, uh, a time of your life in uh, the Viaduct Theater when I was seven and eight months pregnant. And the Actors Fund bought me my shoes. They have a shoe fund with the Actors Fund charity. For pregnant women? Um, for, for anyone. Any member uh, can apply for a reimbursement for a pair of shoes. It was a... Who would have thunk it? Right. It was um, a foundation set up by a specific man who felt like if you had a good pair of shoes that it would give you a certain amount of confidence and and i think it's once every now it has to be 24 months it used to be once every 12 months 
any member of, of equity could apply for a pair of shoes. So I, through the Actors Fund, I had a pair of wool-lined Crocs because I was stage managing up on my feet in a Chicago winter. Then we started just looking at, at finances and realized that we weren't going to be able to afford to stay in Chicago once we had my daughter. My husband is also in the business. He's a technician. So mm -hmm. he was the assistant technical director of DePaul University's theater school. And I was a freelance actor. Once you took me out of our workforce, even though I made as much money as him, sometimes it could be 10 to 12 different W-2s and 1099s in a year. Mm. I was very much an independent contractor. Then we were looking at, do I want to go and try to find a full-time job in order to have my daughter raised in daycare, in order to stay in a 700-square-foot condo in Chicago, or look at options where we can live on one salary and I can be at home with her, or we can, um, you know, craft a different life for ourselves. And that's what we ended up doing. So when she was born, we moved to Palatka, Florida which is 45 miles east of Gainesville, oh. where my husband got the same job that he had at DePaul at Florida School of the Arts. But I went from being a working actor in Chicago to a stay-at-home mom in Palatka. And the life shock is the premise of my one-woman show, The Pearl and the Hogwaller. That, okay. that cabaret is the story of moving from Chicago to Palaka, finding myself in this new life, finding nothing about my life recognizable, looking down on all of the aspects of this town, and, um, and the journey of getting over myself and learning how to bloom wherever you're planted and that good people exist everywhere if you're not too busy prejudging. And I've worked on that show over the years mm -hmm. and uh, it wa it won the Bill Bowers Award of Excellence at the Sarah Solo Festival last year and nice. has been performed at American Stage and at the Palladium and uh, New American Theater, which used to be in what's now Sundial. But when I was first, when I immediately first came back to Florida with my eight-week-old daughter, there were auditions for this brand new theater company that was going to do an inaugural production in studio at 620. And I thought that I would just go and audition for the sake of staying sharp. So I went and auditioned for the Wild Party for the brand new Freefall Theater Company. And I was cast. And so I did the Wild Party 12 weeks postpartum. Oh my goodness. It was a, it was a tremendous experience. My daughter, I would bring her uh, in, you know, the little carrier that you put into the car seat and everything. Uh, she'll be nine this May. Wow. <laughs> um, I had also gained a tremendous amount of weight in my pregnancy. I was big as a house and I played Madeline, the lesbian stripper. And I was in uh, a corset and heels and uh, I've actually lost 140 pounds since that show. And then wrestled the others off until today. <laughs> so you are, in a certain way, a, a true definition of a working actress. You work all the time. You're in the Pinellas County area. There's some very good local theaters, but it is amazing to me that you could be so prolific and so 
productive in in your work. Thank you. How do you make that happen? It's challenging because um, there's only uh, I'm I'm a member of Actors Equity, uh, so I'm a union actor, and I've been a member for 13 years, so I'm vested. Uh, I believe in it very strongly. And so it's not an option to me to not be union, but that does limit my opportunities to perform locally. So I have to leave town often, and I do, as much as possible with my family situation. And one of the other benefits of living here is that this is where my support system exists. We did try to go back to Chicago in 2012, My husband took a job at the Goodman Theater and we moved back up and our daughter was four and in preschool and just, we struggled. We struggled for the whole nine months that we were there, um, you know, barely able to afford rent in an apartment that was specifically to live in a good public school district. We didn't have free childcare. (laughs) We didn't have family. And so, you know, when you're weighing these different options here, perhaps my opportunities are on paper less than what is on paper available in Chicago, except I can take everything that comes here. I can afford to work for less money. I can afford to work for smaller amounts of time. I can leave, physically leave my home and work out of town for short spurts. And so really the move to Florida has been very good for me. But I also create my own opportunities. I don't like to sit still. If I am looking at a horizon that doesn't have anything formal booked on it, I'll reach out to someone like Paul Wilborn and see if I can get a cabaret on the books several months down the road. Then I have something to channel my energy towards and work begets work. When you're putting the energy of working out into the ether, I, I see things come for me, um, you know, as, as if nature abhors a vacuum. So whenever I have a, a dry spell, I put something out there and then I have something to to work towards. And when it's over, it's back to the drawing board. Well, you're a multi-talented. I called you an actress, but you really bring a tremendous amount of skills to the table. I saw you in Spamalot. You were Lady of the Lake. And that that role is, is very funny. But the person in that role really has to be able to sing. Because you're carrying a lot mm-hmm. of the story, and, and also you're kind of carrying a lot of... It's humor, but the emotion of the play that drives the play forward. Mm-hmm. But it's mostly in song, is it not? Yes. She doesn't have spoken dialogue until like three quarters of the way through Act Two. <laughs> Everything is sung up to that point. So did you know that you were a good singer when you were young? or it was... Yes. Um, singing, singing probably came, well... Singing came first in terms of public performance. I did my first public solo singing performance when I was five and have always kind of considered singing my superpower. <laughs> in, uh, in middle school, uh, I, I, did, I felt like the awkward kid and I felt unpopular and uh, I sang in the talent show and all of a sudden the cool kids wanted to talk to me. 
I have a four and a half octave range. Right. And, uh, and I love the storytelling of musical theater specifically and have pursued that as opposed to opera. Not that opera is not an incredibly powerful uh, form of storytelling. I just enjoy what musical theater storytelling is. And what is musical theater storytelling? Well, I mean, I could make an argument that it's the closest thing we have to Shakespeare in, uh, in contemporary theater. This idea that you speak until words don't serve the emotional need to communicate and then you must sing. And Shakespeare being the same, that you can speak in prose until you need something that's greater than spoken word, and then we we utilize verse. So for me, musical theater is uh, it really delineates those those things that you you can you can say more than just what words allow, and songs are just monologues set to music. Okay, so can you give me an example of uh, give me an example of my um, one of my heroes is Sondheim, and uh, my favorite of his musicals is Passion, and it's so it's so dramatic. I mean, it's just so dramatic the whole piece. But uh, Fosca, the character that that I have on my dream list, when you first meet her, um, she's just speaking to, um, she's borrowed a book and she's returning the book to the soldier. And uh, he, he's asking her, you know, how she, how she liked it. They're just having a spoken conversation until he asks her, what did you think of the book? And she says, I do not read to think. I do not read to learn. And she continues on, you know, that, that, uh, what she needs out of books is escapism. It's to forget her reality and live another person's life. And just speaking those words are not enough. And the song is incredibly powerful and just keeps building and building until the the accumulation of it, of saying like, no, Captain, look at me. I do not want for what I cannot have saying like I understand the the limits of of dreams and that's why I live in these false worlds so so how do you stay motivated then you you have this great opportunity and and you're going to this great performance coming up and then after that it's it's a big unknown I think that that's true for a lot of people in 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 the creative world Mm -hmm. You know, perspective. As I stand here in this moment and look back, I have not yet starved. I have not yet been homeless. I have no reason to believe that uh, I'm not going to just continue to put one foot in front of the other because I always have. I have a tremendous support system. And so when I'm in that gloom and doom place of, oh, I'll never work again, I, I have little nuggets from uh, mentors, loved ones that I that I cling to, and I'll tell you two of them. Um, my dad is one of them. My dad is a very practical man. He's also creative, he's a musician, but he, for personal reasons, life reasons, uh, he definitely pursued um, safety, uh, predictability, 
he's he's done a lot of things in his life right so now he is retired he is living a proper retirement and that came from honoring his commitments and uh, and working in a very safe way so I've always believed that if I was disappointing him he would tell me that if it was time for me to get a real job he would say get a real job because mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. Um, how he is but Instead, he's the first one to tell me something's going to happen. It's going to be your time. If not this, then this other thing. And uh, I always remember one specific thing he said. His faith is very important to him. And he said, God wouldn't give someone like you talent for it to go to waste. Mm-hmm. So I, when when I'm having a tough time, I I cling to that. The other uh, is I went to the British American Drama Academy at Oxford University in 2002. And I had applied for grants from the National Society of Arts and Letters, where I'm a two-time national competitor. And I won third place nationally in musical theater through that organization. And so at the chapter level, you can apply for career forwarding grant money. And I got some in order to go to England to audition for training programs. And so I had my whole trip all set. I was auditioning for seven schools. And four weeks before the trip, I had a freak accident and fell down the stairs in my apartment and broke both ankles and both fibula all at the same time. So I was being carried out of the apartment on a stretcher and looking at the paramedics saying, I'm going to be able to walk in four weeks, right? And they're like, no. <laughs> so oh my goodness. I came home. Um, I had casts to both knees and I, I, it just didn't even occur to me to quit. I asked my dad to help me edit together. Now this is 2002, so everything is still VHS. My dad helped me edit together whatever I could find of me moving me just walking so that I had proof for the schools that I can walk. And my husband was coming with me on the trip and I called the schools and five out of the seven would still see me. And I flew to England. I had an entire carry on of nothing but instant ice packs to try to keep the swelling down on the flight. And I auditioned for five schools from a wheelchair And I got into all five of them. Wow. And I weighed the different schools and what they had to offer and what my life was like at that time and settled on the shortest time frame with the most illustrious faculty. Mm -hmm. I can put everything else on hold and do nothing but this intensive for five weeks and work with some of the greatest names in British theater, in theater period. Uh, that that would serve me the best at this moment. So I chose that program and leading up to going, I was bedridden. So I read the complete works of Shakespeare from cover to cover. And I was ready to to take full advantage of, of being at Oxford. So 
when I got there, you re-audition and I was sorted um, out of the whole international student body. I was one of 13 people that got to study under John Barton directly, who mm-hmm. founded the Royal Shakespeare Company. And our class had a special teacher each week. So the first week we had Katie Mitchell for Chekhov and then we had Bill Gaskell for Restoration Comedy. He directed Maggie Smith in the Restoration Comedies that were being revived in the, the 70s and 80s. Um, I had Deborah Warner for contemporary theater. She is the director that works often with Fiona Shaw, um, doing kind of very contemporary, very found, found theater, theater based on literature. Uh, she's a really exciting figure. And my fourth week, I had Jane Lapiterre. Jane Lapiterre is a Royal Shakespeare Company member. She won the Tony for Piaf. She had a brain aneurysm in the late 90s that has made her unable to perform anymore. But she's a champion for the Globe Theater. She's a teacher. And so I had her for that last week. And our first day with her, we went around the circle and uh, each of us just got up and did a, a sonnet, something that we had been working on with John. And as she's going around the circle, She's getting kind of increasingly um, agitated. <laughs> and finally, like two or three people before me, sort of like, this is not what I expect from the Garrett group in week four. Have you been listening to John? And we're all like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. So she gets to me and I stand up and I say my piece and it's totally quiet. And she says, do it again. And I did it a second time. And she just looks at me and says, have a seat. And I felt 12 heads go like, (laughs) and so I was like, you know, couldn't catch my breath. It was this thrilling thing. Like, oh my gosh, I like, she likes me. She likes me. So after class, there was a time frame between like the end of formal classes and when the dining hall opened. And during that time, the buttery was open. That's like the little pub bar. And the lawn just came to life with, you know, this is an international student body. Mm-hmm. So there are, there are American kids tossing a football or a Frisbee over here. There's a group of Irish kids with a guitar over here. I remember a couple of students from China who carried around the complete works in two different volumes and two different languages. Um, teachers are mingling with the students. And I used to just sit on the lawn. Uh, By this point, the fiberglass casts were off, but I had these removable casts. So Mm -hmm. I still had casts to both Mm. knees. And I was sitting on the lawn and and I liked to watch all of the activity. Well, that particular day, here comes Jane Lapiterre and she sits down next to me. And then a little man comes out of the buttery with two glasses of wine on a tray. And she handed me a glass of wine and said, I just wanted to toast your inevitable success. Wow. And I hold on to that because she said inevitable, not imminent. Uh So as long as I'm still breathing, (laughs) Uh it can still be inevitable if I just keep putting one foot in front of the other. (laughs) So from my perspective of living in the community where you perform a lot, I see you as tremendously successful. 
from my point of view, her prediction has come true. Thank you. From your point of view, what I'm hearing is you're, you know, you're still on your trajectory. I, I hope that I'm still on my trajectory. That was That's one huge life lesson that I have learned is to redefine success constantly. Uh, and certainly I'm, I am not looking for a way out of Tampa Bay. I don't think that there's something greater than, but I do always just want to keep being better. I don't want to stagnate. I want to, I like to work other places where I meet other people. Um, I like to work on new works, you know, perhaps the things that will really define me are, are plays that haven't even been written yet. And I just, I just don't want to ever feel like I'm done. I'm never satisfied with cabarets that are just like, these are songs I like. I want to tell a greater story. And what I love about cabaret as an art form is that it's a whole, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, art form. So you take these pre-existing songs and you repurpose them within this new story. And now they, they have a double life. So all of my signature shows are a very eclectic mix of music, but none of it is original music. It's mm -hmm. all, um, mm -hmm. you know, songs pulled from other things that are now telling this part of telling this new story. I know you do a whole show using Rosemary Clooney's songs. Yes. That she made famous. Yeah. The, um, she's been one of my vocal idols. And the reason that I even knew who she was was because of the Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil soundtrack. When that movie came out in the 90s, the, the soundtrack was all um, various people singing Johnny Mercer songs. And she does a version of Fool's Rush In, and it's, it's late career, so her voice is, is particularly deep and meaty. Um, but my voice achieved the timbre that it has. I have a big range, so vocally I can sing quite high and sing quite low. But the timbre of it is, is fairly dark and, um, and meaty. When I was in middle school, I didn't sound like the other girls. I took up the flute because I couldn't sing in the chorus, but I heard Rosemary Clooney's voice and just perked up immediately, realizing that, that my voice wasn't freakish, that, and she became my, my idol, um, because of having this warmth and vulnerability and ability to tell a story that you always believed. She was so unpretentious in the way that she crafted, uh, you know, her interpretation of these songs. And so many, many, many years later, I finally said to Paul Wilborn, how about a, an evening of Rosemary Clooney? And it was like, yes, La Lucha. Yes, here's the date. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> Can you I, I give a, a, us a short example of the voice style that both you and Rosemary share? Oh, sure. Um, well, and her uh, her version of Fool's Russian is so, uh, it, it's, it's incredible to me. I think I can probably do it without even thinking about the pitch. Romance is a game for fools, I used to say. A game I thought I'd never play. Romance is a game for fools, I said and grinned. 
Then you passed by, and here am I, throwing caution to the wind. Mm. Yay, that was fantastic. <laughs> to be an actress and to not be within, let's say, what our current society says is the right size or the right shape or the right color or the right age. Yeah. Um, well, you know, and, and now I'm in uncharted territory with with this new body. So I don't know. You know, it, it, it will change how I look at character descriptions. And, and it will, even though already I have a resume that somewhat defies logic, I've been very lucky to work with a number of directors who just didn't cast based on those things. Uh, and starting with Kenny Mitchell. Kenny was the artistic director of American Stage when I was a college intern there in the late 90s. He He's one of those people that once you've crossed paths with him, your life is forever for the better. Um, he had cerebral palsy. He was a, just a tremendous, tremendous human being. And he thought in a different way. And Kenny told me, if you cast the type, you have the audience for the first five minutes. If you cast the essence, you have them after the first five minutes for the rest of the show. And so, you know, I have a great diverse mix of things on my resume. Some things I got because I was plus size. Moon for the Misbegotten is one of those. Um, Sleeping Beauty and Disenchanted was one of those. And I'm very grateful for both of those opportunities. I almost did an audition for Spamalot because I thought I was too heavy to be the Lady of the Lake. Well, that is amazing because you were the most perfect Lady of the Lake. <laughs> I, I, I'm so glad that you auditioned. But <laughs> my, you owned that role. Oh, you my totally husband and I are, I'm a lifelong Monty Python fan, thanks to my mother. And uh, when we were in Chicago, the pre-Broadway tryout of Spamalot started in Chicago. So my husband and my Christmas present to each other was to go to the first public preview of the first pre-Broadway tryout of the show. So Eric Idle was in the audience. We saw the full original Broadway cast. And I grabbed an extra playbill from my mom, who was the reason that I loved Monty Python so much. And she brought it out for me after I did Spamalot. And it had a note in it that I had written to her where I talked about how incredible the Lady of the Lake was and how I was so bummed I would never get to play her. Wow. And you did and play did. her, and play her <laughs> magnificently. Well, I thank you so much. Uh, this has been a lovely conversation. Thank I you. Really Same to you. Appreciate all that you had to share and offer. Here with Becca McCoy, a actress and a singer, and a, a, a person with a really interesting perspective on uh, acting and being active. So, thank you again. Thank you. We appreciate you being here. This is Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, also known as AI, the Creative Pinellas Podcast. Sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, visit St. Petersburg Clearwater and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.